And last week, we uh, started this series called Speech Therapy. Pastor Aaron, you know, took us out of the gate, <clears throat> dealing with a, the concept that life and death are really produced by our speech. Our speech produces life in us and produces life in other people. And our speech produces death in us and death in other people. So this is a very, very, we think it's a very, very important biblical truth that we want to, you know, tie into what we just ended on our Go Big series. If you're just joining us, we spent almost two months on a series about believing big things from God and praying for big things and contending for those big things and winning big in life. And, and we believe we have a big God, but those promises will come to pass in our life really based on our confession and the things that come out of our mouth. Same is true as a church. What God wants to do with us as a community of people called this local church, uh, not that we're any special than any other church in town. We're just a faithful group of people come together as family. But what God wants to do is really contingent upon our confession, what we confess publicly with each other in spirit, and uh, what we don't, if we're negative and doubtful and pessimistic and, and uh, you know, what's wrong and this and that, and I don't know, uh, nothing ever works out, and Bob, I think, has lost his mind, and, you know, all of a sudden we just kind of get in this whole thing where we get kind of weird, we're not going to experience the things that God wants to do in our midst. So this is really an important principle. You know, I was thinking, and, and before we get into our text today, about Joshua, who, you know, was the, was the Israel, uh, Israel leader who took the children of Israel out, uh, from the desert, crossed the Jordan, and possessed what was known at that time as Canaan land, which you know today as modern Israel. And uh, Joshua was one of two guys that was a part of a former generation that came out of Egypt. We all seen Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments and I remember my sister, Sarah, I took her as a little girl. I was a little kid. We went to the movie theater, watched the Ten Commandments. And remember, you know, the gold, the burning bush and the voice of God speaking. I about, I about wet my pants in the movie theater. I thought God was talking. I couldn't eat my popcorn the rest of the matinee. But you know, that people that came out of Egypt, and some of you have been to Universal Studios. You've actually driven through the Red Sea. But... Uh, that generation didn't make it across the, the Jordan River, didn't make it across to the very land God uh, wanted to give. He took them out, but he, but he couldn't take them in because of their confession. They just saw what the land was like. They'd been complaining the whole journey. They didn't like God's journey. They didn't like, the, they didn't like MapQuest that he kind of laid out. They didn't like Siri taking them to different places where... He made them kind of be tested whether they're going to trust him bringing water to them or not. And they wanted to always go back to Egypt. And finally, when they saw the promised land and they saw that there were some obstacles, there were some high-walled cities and there were some big dudes called the sons of Anak. I mean, really big guys. We know that Goliath stood about nine feet tall and these were big guys. And uh, they just said, you know, they're too big. We're like grasshoppers in their sight and they're they got chariots and they got strong-walled cities. I mean, it's great land, but too many obstacles. God can't do this. And God said, you know, I've had enough. You will walk around in circles in the wilderness until you all die off. Every one of you that said that, you know, that, you know, your children are going to be like fodder to them. In fact, I'm going to tell you this. The children you said would be killed by them, those children I'm going to give the land to. So by their confession, they lost out. 
So now Joshua and Caleb, the only two guys that believed God could do this, are the only two of that generation who got to go in. And Joshua now is the commander of the Israeli army. And uh, he's crossed the Jordan River. They're ready to go take the land. And he does something very interesting in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men, now listen to this, secretly, secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Now, it didn't say he did it publicly. He did it privately. Why was he private? Because he's already been through this. Last time they sent out spies, it didn't work out real well. Spies came back, and they were negative. Spies came back, and they're fearful. He's not taking any chances. You guys go, and you come back and report to me secretly. You're going to stay really quiet between me and you, because I don't want to get these guys stirred up in fear again, because that's how powerful your speech is. And then when he had a strategy how to take the city, it wasn't a great strategy. It was really kind of weird. We want to get all armored up. We want you to walk around the city silently. Make a circle, go back and have some lentil soup. Get up the next day, do the same thing. Don't say a word. For seven days, they were not to say a word. The last day, the seventh day, they had to walk around seven times silently. And finally, he said, I want you to shout. In other words, I want you to speak faith together. Why was this all quiet? I mean, these guys did not do good 40 years before with their speech. They were taking no chances. This is the power of our speech in our lives, power of our speech towards one another, power of our speech in the atmosphere of the church. And so today we're going to be, the title of my message is Your Speech is Not Magic, because I really want to give a broad theological perspective on this thing called our confession. Before I do that, I, 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 we're going to read Romans chapter 10, and, uh, verse 8 through 10. The context of this is, Paul's establishing that we are justified before God by our faith. And he actually has a term that he calls a righteousness based on faith. In other words, I become right before God, not on doing strenuous things and going on pilgrimages and doing penance and, you know, beating myself and starving myself and going to the heights of the Himalayas to, you know, to somehow find secret truth. Or I go to the depths of hell to somehow find truth. I suffer the deepest things. But I just grab a hold of God by faith. That's what he's saying. He just grab a hold of God by faith because he said, who's going to go into heaven to pull Jesus down? He's already come down. Who's going to go in the depth of the earth to bring Christ up? He's always been raised from the dead. That's why we had baptism today. He, he was raised from the dead. He's seated next to the right hand of the Father. All you and I got to do is grab a hold of him by faith. The work has already been done. That's pretty easy, isn't it? Just grab a hold by faith. It's called righteousness that comes as I grab a hold of God by faith. So Paul deals with this, and he says this. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. He's talking about what was spoken of in the book of Deuteronomy where God said, you know, my commandments aren't too difficult. You guys can quote them. It's simple stuff. It's in your heart. It comes out of your mouth. You know what to do. That's what Paul says, a simple program. Now, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, notice what comes out of my mouth, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's where salvation comes. I believe in here, and it comes out of my mouth. For with the heart one believes and is justified, 
and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice the connection between my heart and what comes out of my mouth. What's inside of me comes out through this thing called speech. Some people say sometimes, well, you can't judge my heart. Well, yes, you're, you're right. I can't. I'm not God. I don't know everything about you. But you're not completely right. I can't judge a little bit what's going on in your heart by what comes out of your mouth. Because what's inside of you is going to come out of you. You know, when, you know, the worst thing, husbands, you can do if you yell at your wife is go back to her and say, honey, you know, I, I didn't mean what I said. Yeah, you did. You meant every syllable of it. That's why you said it. It was in your heart and it came out. It's the worst apology you could ever make. That's a cop-out. It's like I didn't really rob the bank. I shot the gun. And, you know, I had people on the floor, but I didn't really didn't rob. No, you robbed it. Confess it. Agree. <laughs> you did that. And so what's in me actually comes out of me. You know, we've all been to the doctor. I've been to the doctor. You've been to the doctor. And one of the things they always do, of course, they take your temperature, your blood pressure, they do your pulse, and they get this big stick, like a popsicle stick. It's about an inch, inch and a wide, inch and a half wide. And they tell you to stick out your tongue, and you say what? Ah. ah. Okay. And I've, never, every, I've been doing this since I was a little kid, and they keep trying to choke me with that popsicle stick, <laughs> gagging me, and they put a light down there, and they're checking things out. Why do doctors check your tongue? Well, it's interesting because your tongue reveals a lot what's going on inside of you. They can tell, actually, if you have cancer by what's on your tongue. And so they can detect cancer taking place. Infections, vitamin, vitamin B deficiencies, all sorts of immune issues and viral issues and infections. They can tell by the way your tongue looks. And so if you look at it up like I did, looking at people's tongues is not edifying at all. In fact, it brought a whole new, you know, repulsive uh, reaction to me about people sticking their tongues out at each other. It's not good at all. They, they, they find, there's a lot of stuff on that tongue. It's not good. And the doctor knows that. He's kind of checking that thing out. But what's true naturally is also true spiritually. What comes out of me is really showing a lot what is uh, taking place in my life, in my heart, in my attitudes, in my beliefs. So let's approach this subject by addressing today five questions that really need to be answered concerning our faith and our speech. Now, once again, I'm saying your speech is not magic because this is not just a, um, uh, a, a easy subject. It needs to be taught with balance, and I want to teach it with balance. It's an important subject, but we need to answer a lot of questions so we know how to live this out practically um, as believers in Christ. First question out of the chute. Here we go. What is the connection between me, excuse me, between what is inside of me and what is expressed in my speech? Now, Jesus helped us with this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. If you'll turn with me, if you've got your Bibles, smartphones. How many people got a, actually a, a regular old-fashioned Bible here today? Wait, raise your hand. Okay, look, looking good. How many people have a version kind of a Bible or all of you? You've got something on your phone. All right, good. Just use it. Okay, Matthew chapter 7. No judgment. It all works. All the Word of God. I want to just tell all of you that it was originally written on papyrus, so you're all wrong. There we go. <laughs> Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Now, Jesus said this. He said, beware of false prophets. Ooh, so there's people that would lead me astray. 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, okay? They look like they are servants of, of God. They, they look like they're people of relationship with Jesus. But he said inside, inside these people, they're inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. They got a wolf spirit. There's, they want to devour. Now, I got a, the, my first opportunity last August to get awakened in, way out in the country in Idaho to a pack of wolves, Okay, so right, they put coyotes to shame, okay? I mean, wolves like to devour and wipe people out, okay? It was something else. But Jesus said there's people, they look like they're God's servants, but they really want to tear the church apart. They want to tear God's people apart. You will recognize them. You can recognize them. How can I recognize them? You'll recognize them by their fruits, by what comes out of them, their speech and their actions. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? And the answer is No. Are figs from thistles? No. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. I mean, this is botany 101. Bad trees produce bad fruit. Sick trees produce sick fruit. Good trees produce good fruit. You all get an A. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut, good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. So Jesus taught that that which is inward in someone or the inward nature of someone is going to come out through their actions and come out through their speech. So this gives us permission to discern what we witness. Now, I spend a lot of time, I get paid to talk. I talk publicly. I've talked a lot here this last week. I think I've preached about nine times in the last few days. So I talk a lot. I run a lot of team meetings with leaders and subcommittees in the church and different departments and coordinators and I have elder meetings, and I, I talk with people in counseling, and we take people out and talk with them. People come to our house, we talk with them. I get paid for what comes out of me. And what's interesting is that my wife is an incredible debriefer of my speech. So if we're out with a couple, it just seems like more times than not, she has a little bit of an editorial about the conversation on the way home, and especially about the way I talked in that. Like, you know, Bob, the whole time, the whole time, you talked nothing about their kids. You just talked about our kids. I did? <laughs> you didn't give them a chance to say anything about their kids. What do you mean I didn't? I, no, you didn't. I don't repent immediately. <laughs> I usually go home and really weigh it out. And usually, you know, I give her the cold shoulder and I sulk. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, the words are just going over and over and over and over and over again, and I got to kind of come to a place where I did. I, and what it revealed to me is that I'm really kind of caught up in who I am and caught up in my kids and, and not them. That means I got a pride issue going on in my heart that's coming out of my mouth. And so I go through this. I have leaders sit down. Can we debrief about the meeting, Bob? And he said a few things. And really, I have to do this all the time. So this is kind of what I do. You know, I, I get to evaluate what comes out of my mouth. And I do it this way. The mouth was the result. But what inside of me that caused that is the root that I got to deal with. 
And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you got what's inside a person. Their inward nature is going to come out through their confession. They both work together. In fact, he intensely brought this out in Matthew 12. And since you're in the book of Matthew, you can just flip right on over to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34. Now, the context here is that Jesus just healed a man who was, could not speak and a man who could not see, and he healed, them mirac- healed this man miraculously. And his, 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 the enemy, those who opposed him, the Pharisees, said he, he did this through occultic powers. He says, you've cast out this spirit by Beelzebub, who was the lord of the flies. And Beelzebub doesn't mean much to us because we don't have like a Beelzebub cults in the Portland-Vancouver area. But in Jesus' day, they were accusing him of being a warlock. You're using the powers of hell to perform these miracles. And Jesus basically said, that's it, boys. You're revealing to me what is in your heart. And Jesus, who loves people and always packaged his words to be soft and politically correct, said these words, you brood of vipers. In other words, you snakes. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So my faith is expressed through my speech. So if my faith is expressed through my speech, I think it kind of leads us into the second question. Does the Bible teach that I can possess everything I confess in faith? Now, Mark chapter 11. I want you to kind of flip into your gospel and the next gospel over. Mark chapter 11 is a famous scripture preached by those who, who would be entitled faith preachers. Men, I, I actually, women, I actually respect. I respect faith. I'd rather be around faith people and believing people than basically unbelieving people. I'd rather be around optimistic people than negative people. I want, I like, I'd rather be around people who believe in possibilities than people who believe it's impossible. It never said, look like in the Bible when people saw everything's insurmountable that they got too much. But the people with high expectancies, they did. But sometimes a, a point can be taken that's a little bit to an extreme. Mark chapter 11 and verse 22 and 23. Listen to these words. Jesus answered, have faith in God. And truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, now that is an obstacle. That's something that's standing in your way between, between you and the fulfillment of God's promises. Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, this is what you say, be taken up and thrown in the sea, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Come on, he, what, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So the question, it sounds like Jesus says, whatever you say, it will take place, because that's, that's how powerful your words are. Now, I want to say this. Faith has to have an object. It has something I, I have to arrest on. I'm standing on a platform here. I got some faith. I got faith that God's holding everything together. That's why I'm standing up here. I also got faith in the construction of this thing. It's been nailed properly. I know the men who built this platform. So I got some confidence of them. I, I flew in an airplane from San Juan to Houston, from Houston to Portland, and bunch of turbulence last night and, and and turbulence is really overrated it's not all that fun but i had a lot of i had a lot of faith in god's 
protection, a lot of faith in, in, in our modern engineering and, and aerodynamics and the testing of Boeing and everything else. We, we, faith has to have an object. It's just not wishful thinking. This is not metaphysics. Metaphysics where somehow my positive energy just makes things happen. That's new ageism. No, it has to have something we're believing in that's been revealed to us. You know, I, I, I read a poem this week in a gym I was at. It was the poem Invictus. And some of you remember the movie with Matt Damon about the South African rugby team under Joseph Mandela and, you know, the resurrecting the pride of South Africa. And uh, Invictus was actually a poem written by William Henley in, in 1875. And it says these words, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Sounds so cool, doesn't it? Especially when you're trying to work out in a gym and push yourself and break limits and break through pain. Sounds so good. The problem is it's not true. You're not the master of your fate. God is. You are not the captain of your soul. God is. Remember Joshua sees this angel in, in, in the book of Joshua here. Joshua chapter 5, he says, whose side are you on? He says, I'm on my own side. In other words, I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. You get behind me, Joshua. I'm in charge. Come on, I'm not the captain of my soul. He is. I'm not the master of my faith. Yeah, I got things I can do that can enhance my faith or prevent it. I recognize that. That's why we're teaching this. But he is the captain of my soul, the master of my faith. Sovereignty, which means God does what he was, wants to do, trumps faith. Classic point is John 21. In John 21, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, when you were young, this is after Jesus rose from the dead, you used to run wherever you wanted to go, free. He was a country boy, fishing, swimming, throwing rocks at girls, running around the hills of Galilee. Just, he was just a... He was a, just a country boy that loved life. He says, but when you're old, they're going to bind you up and they're going to take you to where you don't want to go. And John says, this signified the death by which Peter would die to glorify God. Tradition tells us Peter was crucified upside down. And Peter responds very interesting. He looks at John and he said, well, what about him? And Jesus said this, if I desire that he stays alive until I come, What's that to you? In other words, it's none of your business. I can do whatever I want to do. I might choose that you're going to die, and he's going to live. That you're going to die a, a martyrdom, and he's going to be preserved until I come. That's between me and him. That's not your business. Now, Peter could confess himself out of that thing, but I don't think it would have worked because it was part of the plan of God. And so faith has to have an object. It just can't be, I got this thing going on in me, and I create by the energy within me my own environment. No, I have to, I, I rest in a promise that comes to me. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by what? And hearing by what? And so faith is created when God reveals to me his will. And when he reveals to me his will, faith is created. Now, we believe God has spoken to us about his will through 66 books of a complete book called the Bible. And we believe he's revealed to us his will through this book. When we hear it, there's just a wonderful work of the Spirit that creates faith in me to believe in the promises of God. 
Well, if that's true then, Bob, okay, I got the word of God down, I'm believing it. Why do many things happen to me opposite of what I believe and confess? How many people have found that to be true? You confessed and believed one thing, but the opposite took place. Come on, let's vote. We all get frustrated. Well, what about that? Well, if you look at the heroes of faith all through the Bible, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, David, Paul, Peter, you're going to find that they went through a cycle of faith. That what happened, God gave them a promise. Let's take Abraham, for instance. He said, Abraham, you're 75 years old. Your wife is 65 years old. Been married a long time and haven't been able to have any children. Guess what? You're going to have offspring as vast as the stars and the galaxies. I'm 75, she's 65. We've been working on this for 40 years. <laughs> Nada. Maybe 45, 50 years. Nada. Nothing. I've been in Puerto Rico. I speak Spanish. <laughs> they call me El Hombre de Dios there. Anyway. And so a, a promise came, and the Bible says Abraham believed God, and God says, Abraham, because of your faith, you're righteous before me. He becomes kind of the poster child of faith throughout the rest of the Bible. And so with that, though, God ties a principle or a condition to that promise. He says, I want you to leave your hometown. I want you to leave Haran. I want you to come out of the Earl of Chaldees, and I want you to go to a place where I'm taking you. And I don't want you to doubt. You're going to leave your family, and I'm taking you on a journey. That was part of it. You're going to have to trust me. So God tied a condition to it. The third thing God does is God allows a problem to take place or a contradiction. It didn't happen overnight. First contradiction is his wife is getting older. In other words, she's beyond childbearing years. She's dried up. Sorry to hate like this. That's what she is. And she's getting older. Every day he gets up and she's getting older and every day older and older and older. And, and the problem is God makes him wait 25 years. Why? Well, one reason, because he just wants to test well, whether we have true faith or not. But he also, and that means do we really trust him, but he also wants to build faith in us. You know, sometimes the longer we have to believe for something, the stronger our faith becomes. He wants to build us up. He's a good trainer. But other times, he wants to build character in us that we need in order to fulfill his purpose in our life. He wants to get you ready for the promise. You know, one thing we know about Abraham is that he kind of took matters always in his own hands. He said, you know, well, this isn't working. I'm going to go into Hagar, my, my servant, my, ma my maid, I'll get her pregnant. We'll call that the promise. God said, no. You know, I'm taking Sarah. God's really restoring her. She's 89 years old, but boy, is she looking good. And we're taking her into Egypt, and Sarah, tell everybody you're my sister. Not good. Abraham's always trying to manipulate deals, but God's going to take Abraham to the end of himself so that only he can do one thing, and that is believe in the power of God. And the fourth thing that happens is that we receive the completion of our faith or the fulfillment of the provision that God promised us. And if you take these four Ps, the promise, the principle, the problem, and the provision, or you can call it the C, the creation of faith, the condition of faith, the contradiction of faith, and the completion of faith, 
and you apply it as you read every hero and heroine of the Bible, you will find these four principles working in them. So just confessing it out of the gate, just naming it and claiming it, it ain't going to get you anywhere. You're going to have to walk in faith. You're going to have to name a long time. You're going to have to claim a long time. You're going to have to believe a long time. You're going to have to go for that. Well, what about that in-between time when contradictions come at me and problems come at me and I'm not always in my A game? How many people have ever been depressed here? <laughs> spirit, spirit of depression here. Okay. I, we all have been depressed. We've all been discouraged. We've all kind of gone in that place. You got up in the morning. You just didn't feel right. You just didn't feel like, man, today's going to be a good day. And so the question is, can I, can I be human when I suffer and not be guilty of unbelief and negativity? You know, sometimes in the Christian camp, we don't let people be human enough. That's unbelief. You got to stop crying. You can't grieve. It's, you know, it's, it's all right. Shake it off. Come on, get back in faith. And, you know, sometimes it's just good to allow ourselves to be human. But sometimes we doubt and we have to wrestle back to a faith position. Sometimes we just hurt and we cry. Sometimes we're overcome with sorrow. And what we've done, we've looked at that as unbelief. I know one friend of mine who was on a, I won't mention the ministry that he was a part of, his wife was having a miscarriage. And the leadership of the ministry told him, your wife needs to get her attitude straight. During a miscarriage. In other words, we've got to always stay on top of it. We've got to always be happy. Sometimes being happy is the worst thing to be in a situation. You know, if oh, someone's relative, you know, just died, everyone's mourning inside the house, and I come in, happy, 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 happy. I mean, out I go. <laughs> Where is that nut? Get him out of here. But we don't, let, we don't let Christians grieve enough. We don't let them fight their faith. We don't let them sometimes go through a season of sorrow and fight their way through it. Now, my Bible tells me that Jesus was sinless. He was without sin, Hebrews 4 says. 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin. He knew no sin. Jesus didn't sin. He was God in the flesh, but he was God. And yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes the three, James, Peter, and John. He says, come with me, for I am overcome with sorrow. Jesus actually was so stressed out, he was sweating out of his capillaries, blood. He was so stressed and praying. It wasn't like, you know, Father, I'm going to the cross and it's going to be so good. No, that was not what Jesus was doing. He was in pain because he had to make a faith decision. He was very human. And sometimes in the name of faith, we don't let people be human because we're equating it with unbelief. They're just being human. They're going to land. They're going to land in a solid place. They're going to land in a good place. Let them process through this thing. It's okay to grieve, especially like at funerals. Death was never a part of the human experience from the beginning. We were not made to die. The final enemy to be destroyed, the Bible says, is death. Death means for right now, it's a permanent end to our relationship. No more. Gone. All it is is a memory. There's a finality to it, except in our hope that we're going to see him in the life to come. It, it, it hurts, and it's okay that we grieve through that. You know, 
Kids love balloons, and I don't think there's a kid that ever got their balloon that they loved that they didn't lose. My grandson, Wallace, he, he loves balloons, but he keeps losing them. And, and, and of course, like a four-year-old, a three-year-old, he'll cry, and you know, he loses the balloon. It's up on the ceiling in our barn. We got to go up and get it, and then he lets it go up again. We got to go up there and get it, and he cries. Kids cry. You know what we do with these kids when they cry? We're, we're just as bad as believers in the body of Christ. Ah, don't cry. It's just a balloon. Come on, let's, let's, let's turn the table on you. Let's, your car just got totaled. My car. Don't cry, it's just a car. <laughs> All my jewelry got, oh, it's just jewelry. Get over it. You know, the Bible says as a, as a father has compassion on his children, I mean, as a, you know, as, 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 as someone has compassion on his children, so, so the, God has compassion on us. As a father shows pity towards his children. I'll quote this thing right. So God has pity on us. God can handle your down season. The key is you can't stay there. You got to fight your way back up. The key is you do got to get back to a confession. But just I, what I'm not trying to do is create an environment around here where someone says, how you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm in the game. I'll, I'll get there. Well, you're not, you don't have enough faith. Now, maybe just having that day, get them through it. Now, if they're always that way, how are you? Well, you don't really want to know. Well, I'm going to quit asking Bob how he's doing because it's always getting ready to tell me a, a, a sob story. Got to get the violin out. But we do need to allow ourselves to be human. So can I then, just taking it the other way, can I be hardened in unbelief as a believer and develop a negative confession? I've seen it happen too many times. The Bible warns us in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. It says, none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so I can get a hard heart which will turn into a skeptical, cynical, sarcastic, mocking, withdrawing confession. Now, how does that happen with people? Sometimes it happens because of disappointment. I believe God for something, and it didn't happen. I believe big, and it didn't happen. I got disappointed in a pastor. I got disappointed in a marriage. I got disappointed in some Christians. I got disappointed in business. I got disappointed in healing. I got disappointed in trying to share faith with this person. They wouldn't respond. I just got disappointed. In and in that, I just withdraw from the scene. I, I get cynical. I'm critical. I'm suspicious. And... I understand when it gets wounded faith like that. When I was a youth pastor at Bible Temple back in the 90s, I took my kids out of the streets for about 12 hours a day for one week. We called it Operation Portland. And man, we did tons of stuff and praying for the sick and leading people. I think we led 60 people to Jesus on the streets. It was fun. But one night at Pioneer Square, they found a guy in a wheelchair. And those kids were determined that they were going to get that kid to walk. They must have drugged the poor guy around Pioneer Square for 45 minutes. Someone finally said, Bob, we better do something about this. You know, the poor guy's getting drugged. You know, they're just dragging him and dragging him and dragging him. And, you know, you know I, I get there. The poor guy's exhausted. My kids have mutilated and abused him. And I, I pick the guy up, and I look him in the face. And what am I going to say? And I said, thank you for letting us practice on you. And, uh, you know, I said... Sat him in the wheelchair. We were, we were practicing our faith. Doctors practice medicine doesn't always work. 
And I put him in the wheelchair, and, but I got a wounded faith. I got these kids believing. They gave everything they got. It wasn't unbelief. They had it all, and nothing happened. And so what, did I, what I did is I withdrew. I'm never doing that again. I fly the next Monday to do a camp down in southern Oregon. I get in the camp, and there's a girl in a wheelchair. She gets up in front of the camp on Monday night. She says, the Lord has told me that at the end of this week, I'm going to walk out of this wheelchair. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. Not on my watch, you're not. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt me. I'm just, I'm backing out of this one. I stayed away from her all week. She confessed every day, yeah, 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 yeah. And Mr. Faith, Mr. Signs and Wonders and Move Mountains was off in the corner. I'm just staying as far as east is from west from her. I got done with my last sermon on Friday night. I closed my Bible. Band's playing. Next thing I know, there's commotion in the back. The girl's getting out of her wheelchair. She's walking down the aisle, completely healed. The kids had witnessed that day on the beach the two top football players in the small town. They came into the camp. Their eyes are big as saucers. They run up to the altar, give their life, and they give themselves to Jesus. What was I doing? I was just like, man, I'm the man of God around here. I didn't know what to do. I just I went back to my camera. I just don't get it. When I believed nothing, and when I would stay as far away from this stuff, it happens. Our hearts can get wounded sometimes. And we draw back and we get critical. And you know, God doesn't want that. It's a lousy spirit to have a critical, cynical, unbelieving. Just just go after stuff. You know, sometimes revival comes with messes. And if we must have messes in order to have revival, then let messes come. So we can experience the real hand of God. Sometimes people lose their faith because they don't read enough. I'm really worried, and I'm speaking now to the younger generation in our church, that we educate ourselves by YouTube. Used to, what you hear for 40 minutes, it would take you two weeks to read in a 400-page book and really think through all that's being said and have time to reflect and to meditate. We just got so much information, and we have a flood of atheism going on right now. You know, theology has a lot of mystery to it. Theology has a lot of complexity to it. Philosophy of the defense of our faith is a lot to think through, but the answers are there, but you got to become a reader. And then, of course, people don't test their assumptions. They, they, we come up with a philosophy in our culture, and, and, and we, if this is truth, but we don't test it out. And I'm going to say very straightforward, we have not tested out like the transgender scenario. And I know I have my biblical position, and I'm not here to attack anybody who has, is in that lifestyle, and Jesus loves them and has a plan for them, and I need to love them as he loves them. But what happens is that we start a theory and if it doesn't apply in every situation, it's not truth. And about, you know, a, you know, about a mile down the train track, the thing derails. We're facing now what to do with the bathroom situations. You know, so, okay, so my 10-year-old daughter's in there, and a man thinks he's a woman, goes in there, what do I do? Well, we're, what, are we, what are we doing? We're wrestling with things we should have wrestled before we got out of the gate. 
But we, I can give hundreds of scenarios. I'm just not here, just I'm using that as an example. To, to we, we come up with positions that we don't test our assumptions. And if they don't work in every situation, it's real simple. It's not truth. And so we've got to be very careful what we believe. And so we're taking in all this stuff without testing it, applying it. And then, of course, there's the, just the old-fashioned justification of sin. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You cannot handle anger. You cannot handle bitterness. You cannot handle rejecting somebody or just being jealous of somebody or, 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 or gossiping about something. You can't handle sin. You're not made to handle sin. It will eat you alive. It will destroy your thinking. And it will lead you in a place where you'll finally reject this book. And it will come out in an unbelieving confession. So let's, let's bring it home here. Worship team, let's come. I can do this fast. Here we go. What do I do? First, fear the Lord. What do you mean, fear the Lord? Jesus said this. I tell you, this is, a very, this is Jesus now. I tell you, in the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, why would Jesus be so harsh on my speech? Because your speech reveals what's in your heart. Now, when I got saved at 21, I came out, my sister's here, she could tell you all about it too, we came out of a horrible childhood, deplorable, just talking about it, the three siblings we were just talking about it here a few weeks ago, my older sister just teared up just talking about it, the age of 69, she can still start crying like that, but we fought our way through it with grit and spit and effort and everything else, but we had wounds. And so I became a public school teacher. There was, there was a lot of things I could do, but we lived in a garbage dump for 20 years. There was a lot of life skills I didn't have. And I was fumbling professionally all over the place. And I just felt like I was a loser. And every night I'd come home with my young, beautiful wife, and I'd confess, you know, I'm just so dumb. I'm just so stupid. I'm the worst teacher in that school. I should get another career. I don't know why you married me. I mean, this is what she got as a constant vocabulary. Tears coming down her face. One time I took my fist and beat myself in the face. I was so frustrated. She just was helpless. Just, what do I do with Bob? Until I was reading a book where this scripture came out. In bed one night, being a Christian. And Jesus comes, zeroes in on, Bob, you're going to be judged by every careless word you've ever spoken. Because, see, what you're saying, you're putting me down. First, you're putting my ability in you, my power in you, you know, my grace in you. You're putting that down. You're also rejecting what I made. In other words, I heard a big divine, stop it, because you're going to answer for it. And, you know, the next day I said, I'm going to get up and I'm going to say positive things. You know what? It didn't happen overnight. It was really hard to say something positive. I wanted to go the negative. It took me months, months to change my confession. But what carried me was the fear of the Lord. Second thing, we got to heal the tongue. What do you mean, heal the tongue? Well, this is what James says here. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. How many people would say that your mouth has gotten you in troubles before? 
The tongue is set among its members, staining the whole body. Oh, great. And, and notice this, setting on fire the entire course of life. Your tongue is going to determine your destiny. Your tongue is going to determine how far you go in life, your speech. And it's set on fire by hell. So the enemy of your soul is involved in your speech. Say it. Say it. Say it. Because they know that it will determine your destination. Heal your tongue. Renew your mind. If everything that comes out of me is a result of what's in me, then I got to renew what's in me. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You got to change your thinking about God, change your thinking about His Word, about life, about fairness. Don't ever get entertained thoughts like, why does good things always happen to Ben Meckle, but not me, or Sandy Miner, but not me, and Darcy Zett, but not me? How come they happens, good things happen to them and not me? That kind of thinking is stinking thinking. That'll destroy you. Every, everybody has their day, and everybody has a bad season. Life is the same to all. We got to change our thinking. We got to renew our minds. The other thing we have to do is we're going to have to invite a search at times. Take these periodic breaks where you say these with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, God, am I getting bitter? Am I getting cynical? Am I withdrawing? Am I avoiding? Am I jealous? Am I competing? Am I getting puffed up? God, you know, just, I just, but once a month, get away by yourself for a few hours and just say, Lord, let's, let's get caught up. Where's my thinking? I mean, just so much gets, gets thrown into us. And then lastly, we want to guard our hearts. Once you get renewed, you want to guard that thing. The Bible says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That's talking about wells in ancient villages. Same today in undeveloped nations around the world. We got so much water. We got hoses, and you can have as much water as you want at a restaurant. There's places around the world, their water source comes from a well for a village. It might, might water 500 people. They have guards over that thing. If that gets polluted, everybody dies in the village. When this gets polluted, when this gets polluted, and it starts coming out of here, my life is over. I'm to guard that thing. What's coming into me? What am I hearing? Who am I hanging with? We love all people, and you should be friends with all. But who is your posse? Who is your closest friends that you need? They better be people of faith. They better be people who believe. They better be people who are going after the promises of God and believing in the goodness of God and believing in the plan of God and the victory of the church and, and an optimistic view of your life. Sure, they'll be real. Sure, they'll have times where they're crying. Sure, they go through stuff, but they get back up and we're moving forward. You need to be around believing people. Don't allow them to destroy you because I've watched it happen too many times. Joshua says, I want you to go out. Don't tell anybody. Come back and report straight to me. 
because I don't want unbelief to destroy the camp again. Come on, we can be people with our course of life is possessing promises, not being destroyed. Let's stand to our feet.